0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick. I'm in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Moderna's move, the coronavirus vaccine maker, applies for emergency use authorization today. Surge upon surge, warnings of higher COVID spikes as the U.S. tops 100,000 cases for the 27th day in a row. And data deal, S&P Global buys a rival for $44 billion, the biggest deal of the year so far. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. It's great to have you with us. Let's begin with a check of the global markets. U.S. futures are pointing to a mostly lower open on this last trading day of November. The S&P is on track to fall from record highs. The Dow is set to retreat a bit more from the 30,000 milestone that it hit last week. And it's a mixed picture overall in Europe. Asian stocks finish the day in the red despite encouraging economic news. Japanese retail sales rose over 6 percent last month and Chinese factory activity grew at its fastest pace in over three years. Topping our financial headlines today, the biggest global merger deal of the year. S&P Global is buying rival financial data provider IHS Market for some 44 billion dollars in stock. Shares of IHS are up more than 7 percent in pre-market trading right now. Hopes for COVID vaccine rollouts have been a big driver for markets this past month. Moderna will today ask U.S. and European health officials for emergency use approval for its vaccine. And reports say the U.K. is set to green light the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine as soon as this week, with shots beginning immediately after. We're going to have more on vaccines in just a moment. But first, let's get to our drivers. COVID-19 infections continue to surge here in the U.S. Sunday was the 27th straight day. More than 100,000 new cases were reported. Health officials are warning that infections tied to Thanksgiving celebrations could overwhelm hospitals. The Transportation Security Administration says it screened 1.17 million people on Sunday, and that's the busiest flying day we've seen since March. Ryan Young has the details
2: hospitals on the brink as health experts are predicting a worsening surge after the thanksgiving holiday
1: if your family traveled you have to assume that you were exposed and you <laughs> became infected and you really need to get tested in the next week and you need to avoid anyone in your family with comorbidities or or
2: over 65. the united states has reported more than one hundred thousand new coronavirus cases for each of the last 27 days many health officials fear the holiday travel and gatherings will cause even higher spikes.
0: We are at a risky time because of the travel. And again, it's not just the travel, but it's exposing people who have not been sort of in their own pods. And remember, you can be asymptomatic and still spread the virus, and
2: that's what's so dangerous. A record more than 93,000 Americans are hospitalized with the coronavirus in 16 states across the country treating a record number of coronavirus patients.
3: Without a comprehensive national strategy, It is going to be so difficult for us to adequately take care of all the patients that are in the hospital right now, much less the ones that we anticipate seeing come to us over the next two to three weeks after this Thanksgiving surge.
2: Dr. Anthony Fauci warning the trajectory could require more drastic mitigation measures.
4: We don't
3: want to lock down
0: completely, but we might have to if this, and, and I'm talking locally, I'm not talking about nationally.
2: And in the NFL, six more Baltimore Ravens pulled because of COVID or exposure to it, putting the now twice-postponed game against the Pittsburgh Steelers in jeopardy. The Denver Broncos played on Sunday despite all four of their quarterbacks being quarantined after one of them tested positive. And in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio announcing that some schools will begin to reopen on December 7th after shutting them down November 19th when average test positivity rates in the city hit 3%. We will begin with elementary schools K to five and our pre-K, 3K public school centers. This coming after the New York City Sheriff's Office shut down a club on Saturday that hosted nearly 400 people. Close the bars and keep the schools open is what we really say. The default position
0: should be to try as best as possible within reason to keep the children in school or to get them back to school. The best way to ensure the safety of the children in school is to get the community level of spread low.
1: Ryan Young, thank you. Coronavirus cases also surging in East Asia. Japan says more than 2,000 confirmed cases were reported on Sunday. Neighboring South Korea is also on high alert as COVID-19 infections spike. Paula Hancock is in Seoul with the latest.
3: New restrictions are starting to be put in place in different parts of Asia as coronavirus cases are really starting to rise. Now, we're seeing the resurgence in some of the countries and territories that did particularly well in keeping the pandemic under control in the past. First of all, let's look at Hong Kong. They have now said uh, that they are going to have all government employees, except for those who are deemed uh, to be essential workers, working from home for the next two weeks. In addition, when it comes to schools, all schools will be online learning only from Wednesday day until the end of the christmas holidays officials they hoping that that will be able to curtail the rise that they have seen in recent days now here in south korea for example that the health minister has said that he believes a uh, an outbreak could happen at any time in any place health officials have been stressing how different it is this time around what they are calling the third wave saying that the clusters are far more numerous and smaller there aren't these uh, these one or two epicenters that they can focus on and of course that makes it far harder to contact trace and to curtail the rise and in japan for another day we are seeing more than 2000 new coronavirus cases. At this point, uh, there are no new restrictions being put in place, although certainly uh, you should imagine that they are being considered. Now, there's a few factors between this resurgence that we're seeing. The fact that we are going into winter. Everybody is uh, indoors far more than they are outdoors. Uh, What we're seeing elsewhere in the world as well, uh, what experts are calling pandemic fatigue, people uh, simply fed up of of having these restrictions uh, put on them and and some people becoming complacent. but officials here and around different areas of Asia really hope that these extra restrictions they're putting in place will put a stop to the rises that we're seeing. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul.
1: Moderna says it's filing an emergency use authorization for its coronavirus vaccine today. It's claiming an efficacy of 94.1% and in severe cases of COVID-19, 100%. CNN Health's Elizabeth Cohen joins me live now. Great to see you. You know, I know you've been covering the various rollouts of these vaccines and their efficacies. What strikes you about this one?
5: What strikes me about this one is that it's a much larger data set. We talked a couple of weeks ago when Moderna came out with their first data set. This data set is twice as large, and that gives you more confidence that these numbers are. Are are correct are the reality. So let's take a look at what those numbers are. So what Moderna found is that their vaccine was 94.1 percent effective in this new larger data set against coronavirus, and it was actually 100 percent effective against severe disease. In other words, nobody who received this vaccine became severely ill with COVID. Now let's take a let's think a little bit, of, Allison, about how they got to these numbers because it's very nerdy and weedy, but it's also very important. So what Moderna did is they took tens of thousands of people and some of them were given the vaccine and some of them were given a shot of saline that's a placebo that does absolutely nothing. Those people then went back to their homes and their own towns and cities and they were told and they were told just to live their lives Some of them became infected with COVID. Some of them didn't. So let's take a look at the effect that the vaccine had. So what they found is that 11 of the 15,000 people who got the actual real vaccine got COVID-19. Just 11 out of 15,000. But 185 out of 15,000 people who received the placebo got COVID-19. So 185 people who did not get the vaccine got COVID-19. And again... Nobody in the vaccine group actually got very very got severely ill with COVID. Allison,
1: what ages were in the groups and also how many how many shots are required for this vaccine?
5: Right. So the ages were adults, including a group of including some elderly people. And what's interesting is that the elderly people were just as protected as younger people. So people who were over age 65 also were protected 94.1 percent. So that's that's really great because there were some concerns that this vaccine might work well for younger people, but not as well for older people. So that is for sure good news.
1: Okay, Elizabeth Cohen, thanks for that rundown of what can be a complicated background of some of these vaccines. Great to talk with you. Now, later, we're going to be hearing uh, from the chairman of Moderna with more on the progress of their vaccine candidate. Stay with us for that interview. Two of the biggest names in the financial data sector are joining forces. S&P Global is buying IHS Market for some $44 billion in stock, making it the biggest merger deal this year. Paula Monica joins me live now. You know, uh, it's a pandemic, but you know what? Deals are still still being made. And this is the biggest deal this year. What do you think it says about the broad M&A market?
6: Yeah, I think, Allison that obviously there is more optimism now about the global economy and the prospects for it in 2021 because of all of the vaccine news. And that might be one reason why, we have companies now looking to do big deals like this S&P Global IHS market uh, transaction. Consolidation in the uh, exchange and financial services sector probably does make sense. And with more confidence, you're now going to see more deals taking place.
1: And with this particular deal with S&P Global and IHS, uh, it's basically consolidating you know, a lot of financial information and services. And you know, with the shrinking of this competitive space, are there going to be antitrust issues? Could regulatory scrutiny hold it back from actually going through?
6: Yeah, I think that is certainly possible, Allison, as you consider that LSE, the London Stock Exchange, the parent company there, they're looking to buy Refinitiv in a smaller deal. That deal was announced in 2019. I believe it was the summer, August of 2019, the deal still hasn't closed. It's expected to close in 2021, first quarter. But there are and have been some regulatory antitrust issues in Europe regarding that. But that being said, I think that uh, a lot of investors wonder who's next, because everyone's still trying to compete with Bloomberg. You have uh, you know companies like Factset and the big index provider, MSCI, MSCI that are both publicly traded as well. Could they be Targets for a company like NASDAQ or the Intercontinental Exchange, so don't see NYSE. I think we could see more deals.
1: Okay, I have to ask you about one other uh, proposed merger that that's having issues here. I'm watching the stock of Nikola down 21 percent in the pre market. Um, talking about the deal between Nikola and and GM. Looks like there's a change in the deal.
6: Yeah, the big uh, he a uh, big issue here, Allison, is that uh, GM and Nikola, you know, had a ballyhooed announcement a few months ago where GM going to take a big equity stake in Nikola the electric truck company and help develop its Nikola Badger but Nikola has had a lot of problems uh, you know uh, you know concerns about just how effective it's uh, electric truck is and you know uh, you know can it really go on its own power there was talk about it you know in one press announcement just rolling down a hill so GM is now not as part of their new partnership not going to be taking an equity stake in Nikola and not developing this Nikola Badger car. So the stock is tumbling. Uh, Nikola's stock is plunging on this news. I'd imagine with- Elon Musk and Tesla probably looking at this favorably because it just goes to show, you know, even Murar how, uh, you know, Tesla is the real deal. And Nikola, there's still a lot to be desired, I think, with this company.
1: We'll have to watch Elon Musk's tweeting today based on what's happening with Nikola's stock today. All right, Paula Monica, thanks so much. Great to see you. Thank you. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Funeral services have just been held for Iran's top nuclear scientist. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh was killed in a brazen assassination outside of Tehran on Friday. And we're just learning that Iranian media, citing an unnamed source, says the weapons used were made in Israel. Tehran is vowing to retaliate. CNN's Frederick Pleikin has reported extensively from Iran, and he joins us live now. Frederick, great to see you. Um, I understand you're learning more about this uh, targeted attack. Yeah,
7: mm. yeah, you're absolutely right, Alison. It's quite interesting because the Iranians not only now saying apparently, this is according to Iranian media, that they believe that the weapons that were used uh, were apparently of Israeli make, as they put it. They're also offering up some new details as to what exactly may have happened to Mostafa Fakhrizadeh. Uh, Essentially, they're now saying that all this was conducted with what they call a a radio-controlled machine gun that was mounted on a parked car. And essentially, uh, semi-official Iranian media is saying that the convoy that he was traveling in was stopped when it was shot at, that apparently then the scientist got out to check what was going on and was then shot several times by this remote-controlled machine gun, and that then the vehicle that the machine gun was in exploded only a few minutes after that. They say this only took about three minutes and only a couple of minutes ago, uh, a top Iranian security official came out and essentially seemed to confirm parts of that story. He was saying that it was a very complicated pot using radio-controlled equipment and that there was no one at the scene afterwards. Now, of course, the Iranians, as you've already noticed, uh, noted, uh, are saying that they blame Israel for this attack. And of course, one of the things that's being hotly debated right now in Iran is the possible retaliation to all this. And there's really two camps right now in Iran. There's the hardliners who are saying that they want a swift and very harsh retaliation to go forward because they believe if they don't do that, then perhaps there will be similar attacks in the future. But there's also the moderates around President Hassan Rouhani who are saying, look, we need to really see what we're going to do here next because they believe that perhaps they're being baited by Israel to conduct some sort of harsh reaction that then, of course, uh, would make it more difficult for any sort of negotiations for other powers, for instance, the United States in the future with Iran about the situation in the future, Alton.
1: Knowing that uh, Rouhani has said that uh, there could be retaliation, that there could be a definite punishment Mm. of those responsible, has the U.S. stepped in to contact Iran?
7: No. um, So far, from what we've heard, there there has been uh, none of that. The U.S. so far at least from open sources that we've heard, has not done that. And one of the things that the Iranians also believe, or at least some in Iran seem to believe, that in the end, they think that this targeted assassination is happening in the final days of the Trump administration. to essentially make it more difficult for the Biden administration to start picking up negotiations with the Iranians once again. One of the things that Joe Biden has sort of dangled is that there could be possible new negotiations about another future nuclear deal uh, with Iran. Of course, the U.S. exited uh, the nuclear agreement with Iran during the Trump administration. And essentially, at this moment, there are really no ties uh, between Iran and the United States. So in the end, the Iranians believe that once a Biden administration takes office, at least the situation could somewhat improve for them. So there are some who are saying, look, why not wait this out, see what the new Biden administration brings and not retaliate uh, before that. And obviously there's others who want quick uh, retaliation and very harsh retaliation as well, Allison.
1: Okay, Frederick Pleikin, thank you. And Ethiopia's prime minister claims not one person was killed by federal troops during the army's three-week offensive in the northern region of Tigray. His statement contradicts statements by... Uh, Tigrayan leaders who have said many civilians have died in airstrikes. The prime minister says the regional capital is now under government control. Still to come, on first move, Moderna applies to regulators for approval of its vaccine. The company's chairman joins me for more on what comes next. Oh, and the latest on the Biden transition, the president-elect receives his first national security briefing and prepares to introduce his economic team. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick, live from New York, where U.S. stocks are on track for a mixed open this Monday, seeing a bit of a consolidation here after strong gains of 2% or more last week. That said, U.S. markets and global stocks as a whole are wrapping up a profitable month. The best November on Wall Street, in fact, since the 1920s, with all the major averages up in the double digits. The small cap Russell 2000 index is on track for its best month ever. Oil is mixed. OPEC is meeting today to discuss extending production cuts as global COVID cases rise. Oil is set to wrap up the month with solid gains of about 20%. Okay, returning to our breaking vaccine news, Moderna planning to request emergency use authorization for its vaccine candidate in the U.S. today. The company says it's 94.1 effective in preventing COVID-19 and 100 percent effective in preventing severe cases. It says by the end of this year, it expects 20 million vaccine doses will be available in the United States. Nubar Afayan is the co-founder and chairman of Moderna and CEO of Flagship Pioneering. And he joins me now. Mr. Afayan, great to have you with us.
8: Thanks for having me, Allison.
1: So I want to start with the reaction from, your, from Moderna itself. Its chief medical officer told CNN that he actually became emotional when he saw the data, saying, uh, quote, we have full expectation to change the course of this pandemic. Is this overly optimistic?
8: You know, um, I think that there's, what you're seeing is um, our feelings vis-a-vis the 10 months of very intense effort that's gone into this uh, process. And our goal all along was to demonstrate the most effective, the safest, and the most thoroughly vetted vaccine we could possibly produce. And, and, And we put a lot of effort into it together with lots of collaborators and to be able to get the results uh, that 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 we've seen today certainly is a feeling of both relief and excitement excitement about the impact so i think that you know optimism is is something you can judge in hindsight but the excitement is twofold one is the impact and the second is you know the messenger rna is a technology that moderna pioneered some 10 years ago and 10 years of work several billion dollars of investment have gone into putting us in a position to be relevant in this uh, important time, and that too, obviously, is a is a is a feeling that that could cause emotions, uh, uh, given where we are.
1: Okay. What everybody wants to know: When will you get approval? When will the first vaccines be ready?
8: Um, the pathway available is the a first a request for emergency use authorization, which we're making. We've announced today with the FDA, as well, uh, working with EMA and the Europeans and everywhere else. That, that that we can. Uh, that emergency use authorization we expect may be forthcoming if all goes well during December such that the first batch of vaccines will go out and the, the people who will receive those will be determined by guidelines set by the CDC as well as their equivalents in other countries. Thereafter, in, in the first quarter of next year, we expect to work towards full licensure of the vaccine such that a broader community can receive it and we've said publicly that we expect to produce some 500 million to 1 billion doses during 2021, which we fully intend to, to use across the world to have the biggest impact we can have.
1: And just clarifying, is this a one or two dose shot?
8: This is a two dose vaccine, as are most other ones that have been tried so far. I know that there are some who would like to try a single dose. When, it's, when the, a pandemic of this sort where we're facing an invisible enemy that we've had no experience with, Uh, our choice was to try to go for the most effective uh, vaccine we could come up with. And what we've seen based on our data and others are also seeing is that with two doses, with this technology, we can produce a very significant increase in the protective effect of the neutralizing antibodies. And so that's why we're using two doses.
1: And just to clarify, I know you said it was up to the CDC how many doses will go out, but how many are, is Moderna prepared to distribute, and and what about yes. those plans to uh, to distribute the vaccine?
8: So the twenty million is our is our estimate for the amount we will produce. The CDC will determine how they are distributed, meaning who is in the front of the line. And as you know, Operation Warp Speed that's been set up in the U.S. to handle this uh, for the for the American side, as well as the equivalents in Europe, etc. We're working with all of them. So the 20 million number is a December production estimate. The 500 million to a billion is Moderna's estimate for 2021. In terms of how this is expected to roll out, various countries have already entered into pre-orders with us. We're working with others today. We're working with COVAX to ensure that our vaccine can be part of the arsenal of vaccines that are made available to Uh, lower- and middle-income countries as well. So we, like others who are producing vaccines, are doing everything we can to make sure that we have as broad an impact as we can, recognizing that no single vaccine will be able to do this, and therefore there will in fact be a, a, a group of them that are deployed.
1: So it's going to be deployed simultaneously in the U.S. and around the world as well?
8: Essentially, yes. I mean, in the U depending on when uh, emergency use authorization is given in the U.S., we expect it, as I said, over the coming weeks, same should be the case in Europe. And, and beyond that, different countries will have different approaches to it. But yes, as soon as the regulators are allowed, we will be shipping vaccines.
1: There's been an acknowledgement that the side effects won't be a walk in the park. Does that mean that these are side effects that even the elderly won't be able to tolerate? And how do you know, or is it impossible to know, what the long-ranging side effects could be?
8: You know, Vaccines have been developed for a long time. We've learned a lot about developing vaccines in general, and we apply those to the development of the current pandemic vaccine. We and others have reported reactions to the vaccine administration that are essentially equivalent to what we see with many other vaccines. I think that given the intensity of expectation and scrutiny, people are basically describing these uh, uh, tolerance effects, whether it be a a reaction site, a pain or some muscle pain for 24 hours uh, that can resolve. These are things that we see with many other vaccines and that's what we've recorded and that's what others are recording. And they have a lot to do with the fact that the vaccine is, in fact, immunogenic and is producing a significant immune response, which we want to protect those who receive it. And so I think that the time will show the level of tolerance, but our, our data suggests no serious adverse reactions, which is what you tend to look for. And in terms of long-term effects, the only way you can see that is actually administering and following, which we and others will be doing.
1: So that's an unknown right there is, is the long-ranging side effects. I mean, if you think about it, um, this vaccine was designed in literally two days from what I'm hearing. So how can you, it's almost impossible to know if there are going to be long-term side effects.
8: Yeah. Um, look, the, the, the two days, let me, let me describe to you that you know, there are people who um, follow this technology and, and, and when, you, when you realize what the technology is based on, which is really for the first time We have the ability to make a molecule in the form of what's called RNA, which is a code, and it codes for a protein that is what the virus uses on its surface to get into cells and do the damage it does. So we're able to provide the code for that protein such that when it enters a recipient's uh, body, that code gets converted through their own cells into the protein. There's no virus administered. There's none of the other aspects of the coronavirus that could be harmful and the immune system sees the protein and now learns what to stand on guard for so that when the actual virus shows up then the immune system is ready to attack it so that mechanism is well understood well evidenced in lots of other vaccines we simply have found a way to do this using a a code molecule that's what messenger RNA is like DNA it is an effectively an information molecule that is why we're able to take the information from the virus and turn around and make the RNA within a few days. That is not at all uh, an indication of safety and efficacy, et cetera. It's simply in the nature of the technology we've pioneered that we're able to do that. The testing that we've done for the last 10 months is as rigorous, if not more, certainly larger than most other vaccines that have been developed. And we, together with Mm -hmm. our partners at the NIH, and other mm-hmm. places absolutely expect, as well as the other vaccine makers, expect that that level of rigorous testing is, the, is what we need to show before we can consider a vaccine. So that's, you know, we're following. There mm-hmm. is a sentiment out there that if you go fast, you must be taking corners, uh, at least in our case, and I believe in everyone's case, that's uh, simply not the case.
1: Okay, Nubar Faye and co-founder and chairman of Moderna, pleasure speaking with you today.
8: Thank you for having me, Alison.
1: And you're watching First Move. The market open is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running on this last trading day of November. We're seeing some early session weakness for both the Dow and the S&P, but the Nasdaq is hitting fresh records. News that Moderna will seek emergency use approval for its COVID vaccine today is lending support to stocks. Moderna shares are up more than 15% in early trading. Investors are also applauding the biggest merger deal of 2020 so far. S&P Global is buying rival financial data firm IHS Market for some 44 billion dollars. Investors are hoping to hear more about a flurry of expected year-end IPO deals this week. Airbnb and food delivery firm DoorDash are reportedly kicking off their investor roadshows. President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris will receive their first national security briefing today, nearly four weeks after the election. The incoming administration will also unveil its economic team today. Last night, they announced their senior communications lineup, and CNN's Jessica Dean joins me live from Washington. Jessica, great to see you. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) Great to see you. So tell me more about this, uh, about today's briefing.
9: Right. So today's President's Daily Briefing will be a first uh, for Joe Biden as president-elect. Of course, he got these when he was vice president under Barack Obama. Uh, It's been held up because President Trump refused to concede, and it is given at his discretion. So he just relented on that last week, which means uh, Joe Biden will be receiving this along with, as you mentioned, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Uh, This is a collection of classified intelligence from across the intelligence agencies within the U.S. government. It's going to give them short-term and long-term threats. Uh, what is going on? Top lines about national security. We know that Joe Biden is a voracious reader of this type of information, that he likes these intelligence briefings, really delves into them, quite the contrast to President Trump, who often preferred an oral briefing, if one at all. It also uh, gets us past kind of this odd point where Harris was actually uh, had privy to more classified information than Biden because she is a sitting member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. So again, they'll be getting those that first briefing today. And of course, that will continue during this transition process. Allison, you also mentioned that they we are expecting them to formally announce uh, their economic team. These are women A lot of women in this team that will be tasked with putting this economy back together after it has been decimated by the pandemic. Uh, That will include Janet Yellen being announced as a nominee for Treasury secretary if confirmed she would be the first person, uh, first woman to hold that job. We also, as you mentioned, got uh, a peek at the new communications team for the White House. And this made history as well because it is all women to be the senior staff of the White House communications team. It's a lot of familiar faces from people who followed the campaign. People like Kate Battingfield, Jen Psaki, Simone Sanders. Uh, they all have roles within this new communications team. But Allison, as you can tell, uh, the Biden team moving full steam ahead with their transition. We're also getting word that they have announced the leadership for their inauguration committee. Uh, that committee, of course, tasked with planning an inauguration in unprecedented times during this pandemic, uh, trying to figure out well, how will they do this? How will it be socially distanced? How will it make sure they don't spread the virus while also honoring such an historic moment in American history, Allison? So it's quite a task before them. And also we should note uh, over the weekend, if you see President-elect Joe Biden in a walking boot, that's because he fractured his foot. He has hairline fractures in the top of his foot after playing in the backyard with one of his dogs, Major. What was interesting in this situation was that we were actually given briefings and updated information about his medical condition yesterday as it started with just a look by a doctor and then going through the various scans to ascertain exactly what happened there. But that stands in stark contrast to President Trump. We
1: still don't know why he went to uh, Walter Reed Medical Center a year ago. Allison. And you said it exactly. Jessica Dean, thanks very much. Okay. And we're learning more about the assassination of Iran's top nuclear scientists as the country's leaders vow to take revenge. Mohsen Fakhrizadeh was given a military funeral in Tehran today. Iranian media say he was shot by a remote-controlled machine gun operating out of another car as he was traveling near the capital Friday. Press TV says the weapons were made in Israel. The Israeli government has no comment. I'm joined now by Robert Jordan, a former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, and he's a diplomat in residence at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. Great to see you. Morning. So let's talk about how Iran has come to the conclusion with certainty that, that Israel is responsible. Because what about the U.S.? What about the possibility of Saudi Arabia's role in it as
4: well? Well, Israel has shown that they have the tradecraft and the capacity to uh, engage in these kinds of uh, assassinations. Uh, they took out an Al-Qaeda leader several months ago uh, on the streets of Tehran. Uh, they uh, managed uh, a very bold raid in 2018 to secure uh, documents about Iran's nuclear program. So. Uh, Over the years, they have carried out these uh, assassinations around the world. Uh, They clearly have uh, uh, a highly elevated tradecraft here that I think uh, uh, has many of the hallmarks of an Israeli operation. Uh, They also, by the way, have not denied it, uh, which I think is quite significant.
1: The likelihood, though, that the U.S. or Saudi Arabia had a role?
4: Uh, Very likely, I think. Secretary Pompeo, of course, was in uh, the western city of Neom in Saudi Arabia last week. Uh, conferring with both uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, according to all reports. So I think you have to assume that there was certainly prior knowledge, if not uh, instigation, by these other parties as well.
1: What is the motive here? I know Biden has made it clear that he wants to rejoin the nuclear deal. Uh, We see who his nominee for uh, secretary of state is. Uh, Antony Blinken is a staunch supporter of the deal. So with that in mind, What is the motive here and what is the reaction from Iran going to be?
4: My guess is there are several motives. First of all, Iran, uh, because of uh, the American withdrawal from the nuclear deal, has increased their enriched uranium 12 times the level that they had prior to uh, the uh, exit by the Americans. Uh, Secondly, I think it allows uh, the Israelis to create facts on the ground that make it more difficult uh, for President-elect Biden once he takes office Uh, to return to the nuclear deal, uh, it throws some sand in the gears because it uh, obviously uh, strengthens the hardliners in uh, Tehran. Uh, I think it makes it much more difficult for them to be willing to come to the table. Uh, It also, I think, in some ways uh, baits the Iranians, uh, baits them into perhaps a significant response which would then uh, perhaps encourage the Trump administration uh, to launch a more significant attack. Uh, before uh, Trump uh, leaves office. So I think we've got a number of moving parts here, uh, all of which can be pretty dangerous.
1: What does retaliation by Iran look like? And do you think that they're going to go ahead and retaliate sooner rather than later? I mean, if you think about it, they've also got uh, an election, Iran does, coming up next June.
4: Uh, They do have that election coming up. And I think they are really on the horns of a dilemma here. Do they wait out Trump? and then hope that they can manage a uh, a deal with uh, the Biden administration? Or do they respond uh, risking again a fierce retaliation by the Trump administration? There has been some uh, commentary out of Tehran uh, that they want to engage in strategic patience, uh, which means uh, holding their powder uh, and seeing uh, what might happen with the new administration. But I do think there's a, a great chance of either rogue or proxy attacks against Israeli and American interests, perhaps something attacking the American embassy in Baghdad, as we've seen in the past. There may be also further attacks by the Houthis against Saudi Arabia. They've recently attacked near Jeddah against some Aramco facilities. So we may see sporadic attacks like that, but nothing Uh, that would perhaps be as consequential as uh, as a full-blown attack by Iran itself.
1: Okay, Robert Jordan, former U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia, great getting your perspective today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we'll be right back. Welcome back. Shopify is an e-commerce platform that allows retailers of any size to build an online store. And through it, shops can sell directly to their consumers. When COVID-19 restrictions hit in the second quarter and shopping moved almost completely online, the company saw a 71 percent jump in new stores. On Black Friday, it saw record sales of $2.4 billion, a 75 percent increase on last year's number. Joining me is Harley Finkelstein. He is the president of Shopify. Great to see you.
10: Hey, Allison. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: Great to have you with us. You know, I was out at, uh, you know, one of New York Metro's second biggest shopping malls for Black Friday on Black Friday. Mm -hmm. It was empty. So it looks like shoppers skipped the lines and stayed home to score Black Friday deals online. And I know you have tracking data. What are you seeing? What are people buying? Um, And how much are they spending?
10: Yeah, so uh, first at a high level, I think with more consumers than ever before shopping online this year, we anticipate that this four-day weekend, which we're in the final day of right now, will be one of the biggest e-commerce and and frankly, commerce events in history. Uh, Consumers are voting with their wallets to support independent brands and direct to consumer businesses that they absolutely love. And so a couple of things that we are unequivocally seeing, first is the Black Friday and Cyber Monday Um, event is no longer a North American event. It is now a global event. We've seen triple-digit GMV growth in key geographies like Germany, which had about 188% growth over last year, Italy at 189%, UK at 116%, and Japan at almost 400% growth. And so that is why you're seeing us announce deals around the world like our Alipay integration so that our, our million more merchants can sell easily in China. But the second thing that I think is also really important is that Black Friday and Cyber Monday is no longer a weekend. It is now a season and we are seeing it start earlier and I think this is going to be the blueprint for what retail will look look like uh, well into the future.
1: Yeah, it looks like the coronavirus has really accelerated the trend that's already been there with Black Friday kind of waning, you know, happening in stores really now more online and more of a longer event. Good point there. And you actually cater to uh, small and medium businesses. That is your clientele. How important is that support now when so many smaller businesses are struggling during this pandemic?
10: One of the things that we're seeing at Shopify, and and this has happened almost at the onset of of, of the pandemic, is that we saw two types of retailers emerge in the market. We saw a lot of these uh, more resistant retailers who did not pivot or adapt very quickly. But for the most part, the million stores on Shopify, they were a lot more resilient. They quickly pivoted. We saw a ton of our brick and mortar stores turn their physical locations into fulfillment warehouses and begin focusing more on their online channel. And I think what we're really seeing here is that it's it's a shift and a change that we've anticipated for a very long time the center of gravity for retail has completely shifted from in-store to online. And what we're seeing right now is not an anomaly. Uh, As I mentioned, it will be the blueprint for what we'll see long into the future. But the resilient retailers who are embracing this omni-channel model uh, and all the resources at their disposal to leverage and reach more customers, they're going to be the ones that that absolutely succeed. And that's the reason why Mm -hmm. you saw, as you said earlier, uh, record-setting Black Friday sales, $2.4 billion, up 75% from from last year. We're also seeing that average cart Mm -hmm. sizes are are larger. Average cart sizes have been between $88 and $90 for the last few days. That's an increase of over 10% from last year. So consumers are choosing to buy direct from great brands and independent retailers. And they're also looking for retailers and brands whose values reflect their own. It feels almost like 2020 is the year <laughs> of the conscious consumer. And yeah. uh, 57% of shoppers that we polled told us that they're looking to seek out independent local businesses to support.
1: Harley, very quickly, what's next for Shopify? I know that you guys have Shopify Capital providing loans. Uh, You've got now a new app called Shop. Is there a marketplace brewing here uh, for consumers kind of like a mini Amazon in the works?
10: So what I think you're seeing with Shopify is a shift. Shopify is best known around the world for being the best place to build an online store. And what you're seeing over the last couple of years is a shift for us being the world's first retail operating system. We want we want brands and entrepreneurs and businesses to come to us to run the entirety of their commerce operations, whether they sell online or offline or cross-sell on marketplaces or social media. If they need capital or they need payment rates or they need shipping uh, opportunities, we can provide that to them. And you, know, you mentioned sort of marketplace. We're not a marketplace, but if you were to pretend for a minute that we were we would be the second largest retailer in America online, which means that we can give those economies a scale to small businesses and better level the playing field, making Shopify the entrepreneurship company.
1: All right, Harley Finkelstein, president of Shopify, great talking with you.
10: Thanks so much, Alison.
1: And you're watching First Move, more to come. The coronavirus pandemic has wiped out millions of jobs and accelerated cultural changes in the global job market. In today's Think Big, LinkedIn's Ali Matar discusses reskilling for the jobs of tomorrow.
11: The biggest idea that I've, uh, I've experienced and I've seen over the last few months is the acceleration of digitization, and that's something we're seeing across segments across different industries, be it in the government, semi-government, private sector, be it in the retail, or be it in in healthcare. And I think that's what's going to drive the workforce moving moving forward. We see uh, members focusing on uh, really gaining skills that allow them to go into those future jobs, specifically around... um, uh, artificial intelligence, augmented rea- uh, reality, 3D printing, in addition to the digital skills and things related to financial forecasting, which is, which is what we're seeing as the uh, five top in-demand skills. I was looking at the recent World Economic
7: Forum jobs report and chaired the summit, in fact, and they talk about job destruction of 85 million over five years, but recreating nearly 100 million in five years. So where's the recreation come from and the skills that are needed to get people back into the job?
11: Every time we think of the future of work, it's coming from two main uh, places. Digitization, technology, uh, things related to digital marketer, data analyst, insight analyst. In the past, we were probably focusing on people who knows technology, purely technology, like the coder, the programming, Today we look at business analyst, someone who's able to generate the insights, but able to explain from a business point point of view. And definitely, as per Clinton, what we see like in the coming five years, the technology sector can uh, can trigger up to 150 million uh, new jobs.
7: There's this worry about job destruction outpacing job creation, but you don't think it's a lasting phenomenon? We can snap back.
11: We've seen the majority of the people who uh, got new jobs, or what, what we call the jobs of the future, were people who worked in traditional jobs in the past. So they managed to reskill themselves, they managed to jump on on opportunities where they had to go through different learning curves, but then they made sure they landed jobs of the future because they invested in themselves. What we're seeing at LinkedIn, for example, if you compare um, August 2019 with August 2020, uh, you will see that the consumption of content related to learning has tripled which is exactly talking to that point. People are investing in themselves, and that is very much evident everywhere.
1: We have some breaking news. President-elect Joe Biden has just confirmed his economic team. This includes the long-awaited nomination of Janet Yellen as his Treasury Secretary. Women will also fill two other top roles in the team. Neera Tandon will lead the Office of Management and Budget. Cecilia Rouse will head up the Council of Economic Advisors. And finally, here's Cher cheering up a lonely elephant the best way she can.
3: No matter... How your heart is grieving.
0: You people believing the dream
1: that you wish will come true. Now he looks happy now, but Kevin the elephant spent decades languishing in a zoo in Pakistan, mostly on his own. When Cher found out, the singer joined a huge social media effort to find him a new home. Now, Kavan is being transported to an animal sanctuary in Cambodia, where he'll shake off his title as the world's loneliest elephant. Oh, yeah, but I'm sure if Cher could turn back time, she would. <laughs> I had to say it. That's it for the show. I'm Alison Kosick. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe.